Beyond Infinity. Welcome to Beyond Infinity. Piers Cunningham with you today, and I'm joined by Simon Young, who is the head of content at Melbourne-based virtual reality company Lithodomus VR. G'day, Simon. G'day, Piers. How's it going? Very well, thank you, Simon. You're in such a fascinating industry, and 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 specifically your business, because it's about bringing archaeology to life. And you've gone over to Europe, and you've done some amazing work at museums around the world. So it's, it's really good to touch base with you. And I guess some of the, the things that I'm interested in is partly to hear about you know what's happening with your business and how your year has been overall, but also how virtual reality is playing into the situation that the world finds itself in where you know a lot of people are using Zoom or or WebEx or you know these digital means of keeping in touch, teleconferencing. And I mean, I would have thought on the face of it that if you could add a VR experience to that that communication, whether it's between families or business colleagues around the world, then that would that would enhance things and that would be a great response to this unfortunate situation of you know no international travel and isolation particularly in the in the northern hemisphere at the moment you know very very uh, dire situation in some parts of the world we've come out of it in victoria fortunately we had a pretty uh, pretty rough winter you know how's your business responded to this or is it a little bit too early to to say it's been a really um interesting year Piers. At, at the beginning or end of last year and beginning of this year, we were really gearing towards larger scale installations of digital content within museums and uh, large public gatherings. (laughs) So we were looking at uh, 360 cinemas, um, projections onto onto buildings. We were also looking into uh, VR pods for museums. So VR pod is a group of visitors of up to 30 using uh, virtuality for a simultaneous experience. But of course, when COVID hit, all of that suddenly went off the table. Mm. There was a a real sense of within the museum and and public uh, event uh, industry, as I think everybody's aware, there was a a tendency to shut down, first of all, not not just in terms of, of visitor numbers, but also in terms of activity. There was a there seemed to be a bit of a, a collective shock wave that went over the entire industry. Right. So, so what what we decided to do as a company was to move on to what was to be a phase two of our business development, and that was the creation of a consumer product. So, that means a one to one virtual reality experience where a visitor to an archaeological site or museum could use their own device. Mm-hmm. Uh, such as a smartphone or a tablet, to access our uh, 3D reconstructions of historical sites. Right. Um, so we pivoted. I wouldn't say it was a real pivot because we were planning to do it anyway. Yep. But we we uh, reprioritized our efforts. So this was and, so just to clarify, this was because people couldn't wear headsets that were provided, say, by a museum or by an archaeological site that they're visiting. They needed to use their own gear to get your experience because of because of COVID, because of of contagion. Yeah, 
Uh, precisely. Well, in fact, even even more than that, um, people weren't even allowed to go into archaeological sites for the first time. I think I'm, I'm not exactly sure how long, but the Colosseum was closed, right, and for months. Right. Um, and this this is a, a an archaeological site that is open every single day of the year, apart from Christmas Day, mm. and has been has been for for, for for the last fifty years at least. Mm. So. Um, not not only could could people not not put on the virtual reality headset, but there was nowhere for people to go to <laughs> to put on a virtual reality headset. Uh, it, was, it was severe lockdown. So we thought um, that the best course of action was to look into deploying the content to people's own devices directly, where they could access it from their own home, mm. or if they went out for a walk, um, they could access it on the go. Mm. So that's how we've been spending the the lockdown yeah and uh we released the um the platform uh, as a soft release i'd say about three weeks ago right okay and uh yeah we're uh, now contacting uh museums because interestingly after that initial shock for the cultural um tourism industry and, and uh, we've had it bad in australia but some countries like like Italy and Spain and France and the UK really depend on cultural heritage tourism to as a main source of income to their economies. So right. um, the economic fallout from from the disappearance of international tourists um, made governments take a long, hard look at uh, first of all how they were going to survive the. Um, the lockdown, mm. but but also how they were going to move forward post the lockdown, and um, <clears throat> and a kind of a realization of the precariousness of mass tourism. Yeah, yeah. So so it just took an event like this to stop people coming coming to visit uh, in their millions to pretty much zero overnight, and which you know, was potentially leading to a complete collapse of. A local economy, mm. it's not sustainable. Mm. And also, I imagine a lot of these archaeological sites have pretty high upkeep and maintenance costs. You know, regardless of uh, visitor traffic, so they're going to have overheads even if they are in lockdown. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> um, some, some, I have had heard suggested a couple of times that you know, will the Colosseum and archaeological sites will they survive this pandemic and? And then you kind of think, well, the Coliseum is going to be around after the pandemic. There's no doubt about that. Sure. <laughs> and and um, people are still going to want to go and see it. So I think um, as, a, as an attraction for interested souls, it's always going to play a role. But it's just about at the moment how to deal with it. Yeah. You've got so many different aspects to your business now because you've also got involved in Hollywood, and I remember you telling me that you know one of the reasons you'd done that is because you'd seen you know lots of films that have been done where they've tried to recreate the ancient world and they haven't done so well, and that mm. you thought you could really contribute some extra quality and depth and the historical accuracy that you bring into the VR experiences you build. Um, yes. h- how's all that going? What's been happening this year? Uh, well, we have continued to receive emails expressing interests of from film studios who've come across our website and gone this is just blown me away mm. um how can we work together 
and there are several discussions going on at the moment. Films notoriously take, and television take, notoriously take a very long time to to develop or and to and to, and to get into production. So, so we're still we're still going. we but um, there's certainly a lot of uh, interest and movement in that area. Yeah. So there's a couple of websites which we should mention. There's your Lithodomus VR website. The webs that's yep. just li- literally lithodomusvr.com, and then there's also a new site which is aimed more at consumers, which is ancient-world.co. That I presume is that's part of the new launch you've done three weeks ago. Yeah. Well, here's the crazy thing: that is the platform. So we were chatting before and, and, and you were mentioning where are we heading with VR mm. and we are heading to a really, really amazing space, which is um, web, web VR. So you might think of web VR as this, uh, uh, you're, perhaps you're in a virtual reality environment and you are in an office space and you open up a browser window and then you go to Google and with your virtual fingers, you type in a, a search that's not what, what what web VR is. Web VR is the ability to enter a virtual space, totally three D, free roam, and then to be able to navigate from one virtual space to another to another to another via the web. So you're in this almost limitless, or well, only limited by the the content creators, limitless universe of of virtuality spaces that are hosted on the internet. How do you perceive these? So would you wear a headset and you split the screen into like wearing your, your phone in a, in a Google Cardboard or similar device? How does this work? Well, I'm at, at the moment in a fairly fairly white room. So if we were to imagine that, with a window, we were to imagine that this was a virtual reality room that was hosted on a web page. And let's say I'm wearing my virtual reality headset and I'm walking around this virtual room and I go over and look at this uh, water bottle that's on on the on the table, and and then I have a look in virtual reality. I pick it up, and there's a perhaps a, a link or a QR code on it. And with my virtual finger, I tap the the QR code, and then suddenly I'm transported to the factory or the company space that created that water bottle, right. and um, and I am meeting you know the CEO or seeing how it's created and. In, within that environment, there are all these other virtual links where I can travel from place to place to place in full 360 stereoscopic free roam. So that is quite mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I find the whole thing incredible. I think a, you know, a good VR experience is sort of almost life-changing. It, it's, mm. it's just such a – and it's got – and we'll come to this a bit later, but it does have that kind of – I don't know. It's, it's, to me, it's kind of similar to a dream state, but um, – mm. And a very, very lucid, that very vivid dream state where you're kind of not sure whether you're awake or, or not. And it's like mm. you're seeing the world as clearly as you would with your eyes closed. Mm. Let's come to that a little bit later. So, mm. so Web VR, just to define that clearly, so it's delivered to you over the internet to your VR headset. That's right. So you, you might be, uh, listeners might be aware of these multi mass multiplayer um, games like uh, StarCraft or World of Warcraft or Fortnite where you have a multiplayer environment where you're, you're, sitting, you're sitting in your lounge room and you, with your controller and you're going from place to place interacting with others 
imagine that within a virtual reality headset but imagine that not being limited to the Fortnite game or to the StarCraft game, but being able to travel anywhere over the VR web, wherever there's been content created. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the concept. So instead of a web page with, with hyperlinks on it that, that can take you different places uh, that you manually click on with a, with a cursor or with your finger, mm-hmm. you, you're doing this by moving yourself around within a, a VR landscape using things like virtual QR codes to, to move from place to place. Yep. Awesome. Yes. Another thing I was interested in, and it's been discussed a little bit, like I suppose a lot of things have been canvassed in, in lockdown because suddenly things changed and there was this big switch. You mentioned the pivot, the so-called digital pivot. A lot of companies have done well. The ones that were already on that path to you know, having a decent component of their business in the digital space they've done well because they were able to to go more down that track as required by isolation by social distancing by the you know the the constraints imposed by a pandemic when it comes to vr you know one of the things that you know we've all missed out on is is being able to go to sporting events Mm. and concerts and so a potential use of vr i would imagine is to sophisticated cameras and the multi-lens cameras and they're becoming cheaper and more accessible and more consumer oriented to some extent put them into a you know somewhere like the mcg let's let's use that as the example and convey an experience because as it was we were watching the football when it was played with placards with sort of profiles of people in seats yeah you know it was it was bizarre you know and and even you know watching the the spring carnival melbourne cup horse racing week in Melbourne, the cameras did, did everything as it normally did, but it just avoided showing the stands, yeah. which would normally be such a big part of that presentation because it's the crowds and the colour that and the festivities that, that make it a huge event. What are your thoughts on can VR be used to bring people that immersive and, and to make it more real than just having players with no crowd playing on a stadium? I, I think there's two parts to that. The first part is... Um, consumer or behaviour or uh, human behaviour towards remote experiences. So that's the idea that you could log on to some technology, a technology platform, and virtually be present at a sporting event, for example. I think the pandemic has broken down a massive barrier that existed toward the concept of remotely visiting a live event. So that con- whole conceptual framework where people would say, well, why would you watch an opera streaming live on the TV? Or why, why would you, go, why would you um, have, a, have a face-to-face meeting? Or why, why would you zoom into a wedding? Or what's the point? Why would you conduct a classroom with uh, primary school students remotely? It would never work. That whole concept or res- resistance to that type of behavior has, has, has been broken down yep. um, through this pandemic. I was, I was speak- speaking to a friend of mine who's a, uh, an archaeology professor at the uh, University of Gonzaga in Washington State, and he was um, telling me that even the old, the, the you know, senior Latin professors <clears throat> had to learn how to Zoom. <laughs> To give, their, <laughs> to give their classes. Mm. And he also remarked that he, he, he thought that it was unlikely that there was any student 
or very, there'll be a very small percentage of percentage of students throughout the United States who hadn't engaged in some type of online online learning mm. or face-to-face class interaction mm. during the pandemic. Mm. So that that's earth-shattering. That mm. that change. Mm. We were kind of heading in that direction anyway, but it was slow. There was a lot of resistance. But we were fought, we were fought, dragged into this remote digital age, kicking and screaming because of COVID. Yep. So I think that's the first part, the acceptance or willingness to... And the, um, and the, nece- and the necessity and, and, the, the necessity, that su- and that sudden right. acceleration in, in um, computer literacy for all ages that, that flowed yeah. from that. Yeah. So then a virtual reality headset or virtual reality as a platform becomes a tool to make that better. Yep. So people are happy to, to zoom into um, a sporting match or television used to be, but now they're looking at more ways to be, become more immersed. Or so maybe they might, they'll use a you know their tablet or they'll use a smartphone, but they'll be looking for ways to feel more present, more immersed. And that's where I think uh, that's the second part of the question. That's where VR becomes a tool to allow that. So I think the likelihood of it being being a <clears throat> an acceptable way of uh, attending these remote event has increased dramatically as a result of COVID. I think I'd even heard of concerts, some of these big band concerts that do world tours and the tickets are very expensive and they're often sold out. I I think that they were already, uh, in some cases, selling a sort of VR experience to people Mm. pay-per-view, but making it more immersive and interactive. That was something that that had already begun pre-pandemic. So I guess that's a that's a process that's been accelerated like a whole lot of trends. There's, there's been a big accelerating effect of the pandemic for this sort of thing. Yeah. In fact, um, Facebook's VR, um, predominantly Oculus conference a couple of months ago, mm. was in VR. That's how you would attend. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of big conferences, IT conferences, and uh, all sorts of conferences of different different f- uh, fields have gone virtual uh, because of by necessity. You know, that's just the way, the only way that people can get together. Something I was interested to ask you, Simon, was you're an archaeologist, I think a PhD archaeologist by training, by university training. Yeah. And then you've got into the virtual reality thing as a way of sharing your love of archaeology, your passion with for archaeology uh, with a wider audience and embracing a technology that can do so many things. I mean, the whole idea of being able to stand in front of ruins somewhere in Europe and 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 sort of looking at the real ruins around you and then sliding your, your goggles on and seeing how they looked very accurately, you know, 2,000 years ago, really is an, an incredible breakthrough, really. Uh, and, and we have talked about that in the past. I was just interested to know, have you been forced to get very technical in your knowledge to be involved in the business as you are? I have to uh, confess that I grew up, I actually grew up in a small country town in South Australia on a farm. Right. <laughs> and I was that kid who um, had the first Commodore 64, spent his weekends uh, programming basic. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was the kid at, at primary school who would always double book up the computer time at lunchtime and recess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. yeah, I've always been a big, a big technophile mm. and really enjoyed, um, I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not a gamer at all. I'm, I'm more, more of a, cre- I'm more of a creator programmer type problem solver. Mm-hmm. I 
started off quite a few years ago using AutoCAD to um, enter in ruins of uh, archaeological sites and, and and try and make 3D models that looked pretty good and they looked pretty crap at excuse the language at the time <laughs> yeah because of the tech of the technological um, constraints I think that that was a big motivation that that got me into or attracted me to the virtual reality head development kit mm. uh, the oculus development kit when it came out in 2014 actually i got hold of the dk2 development kit 2 in 2015 and started putting the models i've been working on into, into that but because with ancient world we've moved into and this is a very 1990s term multimedia <laughs> i've um uh really had to hone my skills in manipulating a, a whole range of different uh, digital data so we're now not only dealing with um, meshes and textures and models and, and panoramas and videos but now we're dealing with um, uh, narrations from 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 tour, local tour guides we're dealing with um, uh, scanning and digitizing uh, maps and plans so uh, that the whole kind of uh, digitization of humanities aspect I do tend to spend my time these days dealing with a whole range of different media and that that is quite challenging mm. and i've had to had to had to up my skills in all those different fields you had a long-standing interest in some and some skills before you studied archaeology so i might i might have yeah. might have been better to phrase the question differently and say you know how did someone with the technical background become so interested in archaeology but so you actually you you know coding you you know the technical side of producing these amazing vr experiences that you're that you're providing mm, that, that, that's right yeah. to a to a to a i'd say an intermediate intermediate level mm. there are the the world of um, digital technology and visual effects these days is just in, insanely complex and, yeah. and, and developed. I, I was watching a, um, a, a Star Wars. Uh, okay, I was watching The Mandalorian, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's just mind blowing the, the the level to which visual effects have got to. Yes, and then you look at the then you look at the um, the credits at the end, and you see hundreds and hundreds of of visual effects artists who who work together to create this half an hour episode mm. there's this there, there are gurus there are gurus and and, and evangelists that there, of every aspect of visual effects mm. um production there's, mm. you've got your compositor you've got your fabric your texture artist you've got your particle expert you've got your um uh your colorist and then t- teams below them it's a it's a whole whole world of of speciality yeah and the time involved i think it might have been I might have been watching a uh, an interview with George Lucas, and he was talking about you know very early special effects, you know back in the nineteen seventies when they were putting together Star Wars, you know just the amount of time that was required to do things, and and even with I think mo- modern um, you know animated features, the amount of time to just to create thirty seconds of, of footage, of finished footage, is just unbelievable. It's it's months. It, it really is, and then. There's the me- the meshing, there's the texturing, and then there's the that old chestnut, the rendering. So that's where you get the the model and you um, place a camera within the scene, and then you send it to a GPU graphics processing unit enabled computer. Yep. You hit render, and then this computer simulates how light 
would bounce off um, each surface within the frame. Mm. For a high, like an eight or ten k single frame of a standard movie, you're looking at maybe six hours for that frame on a very powerful computer. And then um, once you start getting into virtual reality and high high resolution movies, you're looking at not a, a, a normal cinema type frame, but you're looking at a 360 degree frame. So you're rendering out everything in every direction. And then you're rendering it out twice for stereoscopic um, VR. So it's left and right eye. So now you're looking at something like uh, 18 to 20 hours per frame. And then we're talking about 20 fr- 25 frames per second. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then you start, the, you, then you can't get enough computers for that. But luckily, uh, companies like um, Amazon and Google and Alibaba have these cloud computing systems underground somewhere in the world Mm. where you can spin up 500 GPUs and say, get to work. Right. Big companies do that. They have a rendering budget where uh, if they really need to put a rush on things, they can spend 50 grand and get that 10 seconds of footage out pretty much in a couple of hours. Wow. Okay. So it's so it's like a distributed farm, if you like, that's in the cloud. That's right. That's mm. right. Mm. Yep. It's all moving to the cloud. I'm talking with uh, Simon Young, head of content at Lithodomus VR, a Melbourne company that's doing such amazing work in bringing the ancient world to life. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.